Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Can I Kick It FC. I'm your host, as always, uh, Elliot Barr. Um, normally, we are a jovial, upbeat podcast, everything like that. But um, today, we are dealing with a serious topic of uh, racism and how that affects it. one supporter. Um, so we wanted to put a warning out there first. Um, if you have ever thought about suicide um, or struggling with your mental health, or anything like that nature. Um, first of all, we want you to know that we are thinking of you. Uh, we are here to support you in anything like that um, and to be a, a listening ear. So if you have struggled with suicide um, or thought about it, you can call 988 is the national hotline number or from mental health, you can call 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-HELP. So, with that being said, um, there's no real good way I had to transition from this. But once again, if you have been struggling with anything like that or um, just need someone to talk to, trust me, there's someone's there for you. So with that being said, um, enjoy the episode. Feel free to share it with a friend and um, see you guys on the other side of the intro video. Yo, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to this week's episode of Can I Kick It? I'm your host, as always, Elliot Barr, and is joining me is a young lady that has overcome some obstacles in her life, but she's on the other side of it, smiling and profiling. It's been some mighty wounds. How are you doing, ma'am? I'm doing all right. Getting. All right. Oh, did it? All right. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Um, first of all, before we start, I, I want to ask you this. Um, I've never personally been to Austin, but how are the tacos? Tacos are banging. Yeah, tacos are banging. Um, very authentic. Uh, yeah, there's. It's hard to like describe because you have your traditional street tacos, you have your elevated tacos, and then you have fusion tacos. You have like Asian Mexican fusion. You've got like, yeah, like there's a lot of fusion happening in Austin, like uh, Afro-Caribbean and Latino tacos, like get your taco on a plantain. Like it's yeah. uh, it's pretty cool. You could you could literally come here and just eat. But like you can come here and just eat tacos. And the next time you come, you can just eat barbecue and just go from there. OK, OK. See, um, I'm going to have to make that trip because I, if I'm not mistaken, is Austin hosting a World Cup game? No, we're hosting a Copa America game. Okay, that's think, what it is. Yeah, we're hosting a Copa America game. Okay, I might have to make that trip, especially if uh, Jamaica or the USMNT makes it makes it far. Um, Jamaica's yeah. coming here. Yeah, I might have to. I might have to do that because um, apparently they hate having Jamaica on the East Coast, the bane of my goddamn existence. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's Unless annoying. It's it, it's, it's annoying as a Jamaica mm -hmm. fan because if they put a game on the East Coast, it would be popping. But that's what we're not here to talk about today. Imani, um, we brought you on today to – we wanted you to share your story um, about what happened um, in the supporter group section of Boston FC, 
how that has transitioned into your life and all that stuff in between. But first of all, I'm going to start off with this question for you. Um, how did you get into soccer? How did you grow a love for the game and how did it all start for you? Uh, you know, I, I my supporter journey, I feel like it's different from when I started like playing soccer as a kid and, and that whole story. And um, But I try to start like the supporter conversation of like, when I really started getting into supporter culture and it was not too long after my dad died. Uh, I was about 18 and um, I just remember like wanting to kind of get away. Mm -hmm. And I really love soccer. My mom was always like, I'm, I'm not paying $265 a month for cable. Cause at the time that's how much it costs to get the soccer package. It was all the way up there. And she's like, I'm just going to drop you off at this pub. So she would drop me off at this Irish pub called Analyphys in New Haven. It's not there anymore. But for like 15, 20 years, this place was just like the hub of Irish culture in the city, one of them at least. And uh, yeah, she would just drop me off at the pub in the morning. She would go to church. She'd pick <laughs> me up later. Wait, how old are you? Really now when I look point? back at it. I'm like, I'm like, you know what? Like I landed in a really good place. Like a lot of terrible things could happen to me. Like being an 18 year old girl, like going oh. to this pub full of like random men at 9am and they're all drinking beer, but like it, it all worked out in the end. And uh, I love the Irish community in New Haven. It's had a huge impact of, on my life. And um, yeah, so I started watching Liverpool games at Analyphys in the morning. I said, uh, I think in 2009, I went to my first ever game abroad. I went to go see Real Madrid versus Liverpool in 09. Uh, two very good teams, um, legendary teams, in, in fact. Uh, and, and just that experience of being with Liverpool fans away in Seoul, being in the Plaza Mayor, like, I, I, it still gives me chills because I'm like, this place is on the cover of my Spanish textbook in, in like, fifth grade. And now I'm here jumping up and down, uh, drinking beer with Liverpool fans. And I had a moment where I said, I want U.S. soccer to be like this. I want our culture to grow and us to have vibes and us to have a full scene of fans and supporters. So I came back totally determined, uh, joined American Outlaws, and the rest is history from there. Wow. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's impressive. It seems like, you know, anytime you talk to a Black supporter – their path to how they became a supporter is always unique and different. It's always fascinating because, like, none of us, outside of a handful, really grew into the game. We're always like, oh, this is the last song. Oh, this is where I last song. Oh, this is where I song. It's cool to hear how you last thought and whatnot. Um, not going to lie, I was a little concerned because at first I thought your mom was, like, dropping you off as, like, a little kid at these bars. It's just like, <laughs> go do your thing. No, I was 17. Glad 18. you cleared it up and said you were 18 because that yeah, yeah. not sound safe. Yeah, no, like my first game, I think was like, um, like one of the build-up games or the final for for 2007 for Liverpool, uh, maybe the Chelsea game, um, and I was, okay. I, it was, it was packed, it was packed to the brim, but then like the next year, I started gonna kind of go in more often, and uh, yeah, early in the morning, nine o'clock, you used to have to go around the corner, down a back alley, through this patio, down the steps. And that, that was the bar like that. The front door was never open. It was like literally like going to a speakeasy, except it was about soccer. And um, again, I'm just so lucky that I landed on my feet and uh, there were some really good people there. It, when you just watch the game on TV, 
it's totally different experience. And and this is like 2007, 2008. So it's before Instagram. It's before Twitter. Um, it's before this kind of totally like global network of people talking online. So you could talk to people who are at the stadium going every week. Um, that wasn't the case. So all of a sudden I was dropped off in this environment and I was only one of the very few Americans. I was pretty much the only woman. And I was the only black person for a long time. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I just, again, I was just very, very lucky. There's a lot of similarities between black culture and Irish culture. Um, it's actually really, really interesting. Uh, Frederick Douglass famously said that, you know, Ireland was the first time a white man ever looked him in the eye. Um, and there's a long history between black people and Irish people, especially when it comes to colonization, oppression, fighting that oppression. And I find a lot of inspiration in the way Irish people fight oppression and colonization, how they've uh, gotten back you know, their country for the most part. And they've even like restored their language was destroyed. I mean, their religion was destroyed. Their language is destroyed. We understand that, especially as African-Americans, uh, what it's like to have a, a, an empire take away your language, take away your religion, split up your families. Um, and so, yeah, I always found really good solidarity with the Irish community. And yeah, to this day, I'm like really, really grateful for that experience. It was all expats. And at that point in time, we were just so, people were just so happy to have somebody to talk to about soccer. You couldn't even go to work. You couldn't go to work at that point and have a conversation about the Champions League. Um, so having a place where you could go and just talk about the game and talk about the players and talk about the banter. And it was just, it was the best. And and I had a, I had a peaceful like four years there. And then, you know, bar changes happen, management changes, this and that, whatever in my experience became like totally different um, in a kind of a more of like a negative way. Uh, I think it's just crazy how when it was mostly expats and people from abroad that had actually gone to games and people from abroad that had like lived it. Um, I was really well accepted and people were very kind and they were like impressed that, that I was coherent in, in the beautiful game and I could get hold my own, hold a conversation with them. Um, and I learned a lot too. I listened a lot because again, there's tons of things you just, you just cannot know. Um, and again, it's, it's easier now, but back then somebody literally had to tell you, uh, you know, what happened, you know, or like, you know, why we don't like, you know, the Tories and why they don't like the Royal family. It's like the Scouse Republic of Liverpool, um, all the history behind Liverpool and Scouse identity and why people hate Scousers and they say you're going to steal your hubcaps and your wallets and, and people always uh, judge them by their accents. That's another thing I can relate to is the Scouse accent is very distinct. And uh, I think the African-American community too can also relate to that of like people judging us and making uh, you know uh, opinions about us just because of the way we talk sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of things that I kind of got with Irish people, Scottish people, um, Liverpoolians. That was really, really special to me. And yeah, when it was expats, I had a great time. And then all of a sudden, bar manager switches and a lot of people leave to go somewhere else or stop coming or they graduate and they move on because I was in New Haven, which is a pretty much a college town. Um, mm -hmm. And it, when it was all of a sudden, I blinked it. It was all American guys. And that's when the problem really started for me. Um, but that was rough. It was a rough time. I actually talked about it on the on a podcast um, with Darius Thigpen um, in 2020. And ironically enough, when I talked about my experience with this Liverpool supporters group, 
it actually mirrored the exact same thing that would happen to me with Austin FC uh, less than a, a year or two later. Um, and that's kind of disturbing of like, even before Austin FC kicked a ball and maybe, yeah, just when Los Verdes and La Marga de Austin just started to exist, I had already kind of predicted this potentially happening because it had already happened. And as much as I, I want, I, I want culture to change, but in order for culture to change, there needs to be a con conscious effort and an acknowledgement that things need to change. And without that, it doesn't matter how liberal you say you are. Um, when it comes down to it, people are just going to make the wrong selfish choice. So, um, yeah. yeah. I, I want to, that's, that's, that's a great perfect point. Cause I was getting ready to ask you about like Austin FC and whatnot. So, Obviously, this is a new team, not new team, but a team that started because uh, what was the order name? Precourt? What's his name? Precourt? Yeah, Anthony Precourt wanted to move of the crew, and that and everyone like my friends in Liverpool were talking to me about that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like moving a club, like they're going to be another yeah. like Wimbledon and MK Don situation, the stain of the earth. Like he was literally like a, a crime against football. Like, like it was, it was like save the crew became like an international rallying call. Like, oh no, I remember. I, I definitely. Dare. Remember. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, yeah. Uh, awesome. She's relatively new. Uh, Precourt ended mm -hmm. up being able to move the team. And it's crazy because like a lot of new teams to MLS right now, um, whether it's St. Louis or um, Louisville and uh, Cincinnati, um, they've all kind of had to earn their place in the league. They were smaller markets and they really had to go out and pack their stadium with 10, 15,000 people in USL in the lower leagues every week, yeah. every year to kind of earn the right to have an MLS franchise. But Austin FC just got handed it. Like it was a boom town. All of a sudden they just got handed a $250 million stadium and uh, there was no real strong supporter culture here to kind of make that transition from lower league to MLS. And you already have traditions, you already have culture, and you already have people who are leaders and people who are ready to step up. Um, and it was very the dynamic and the motivation behind a lot of the fans was not as authentic as it should be uh, with a game that I feel like should always be about authenticity in the fan culture. Yeah, no, most definitely. And so I want to ask you this, like, obviously I've seen, you know, you're one of the starters of the supporters group, all that stuff. How did that journey start for you? Like, how did you get latched on to Austin FC and how were the early days of you being a supporter of the club? Yeah, so uh, I originally moved down to Austin because I had some family in Austin. I never really knew growing up, like, didn't know them, like, didn't call on birthdays, didn't see them in the holidays. Um, but I was trying to get to know my family a little bit better at the same time. It was such an innocent thought. <laughs> I was trying to get to know my family better. So I moved down to Austin. I knew a lot of people with the uh, American Outlaws down in Austin, people I'd met at the World Cup. I had friends down here already. I knew the Liverpool supporters group was really great. I heard good things. And when I'd come to visit, I absolutely loved it. So, yeah, I originally moved down to Austin, uh, like, 2018, 2019. Um, and then, like, yeah. I ended up going abroad, but I immediately got involved with the soccer team or the soccer scene here. Again, going to Liverpool games every week and then um, going uh, to watch AO 
and uh, just kind of being involved and in kind of keeping an eye on the supporters movement. Like I was at those early market practices uh, in the very beginning. Um, and when I went to go abroad due to COVID, I got stuck in the Netherlands and I was there for like a year, but I never got disengaged. I was one of the people that was encouraging Los Ferries to split from Austin Anthem. The reason was um, I didn't like, uh, one of the first things I did was ask the club president, like I best, I guess they'd been around for like six or seven years collecting dues for six or seven years. And I said, like one of my first conversations, I was like, so where's the money been going? Because you guys have been collecting dues. You haven't had any games. Are you like throwing parties? Are you hosting events? Are you giving to charity? And uh, basically that guy ended up getting ousted because um, there were some shady things happening. Um, and, and, uh, but because of that, I was kind of wary of, of what Austin Anthem was. So I said, yes, form another supporters group, form Los Verdes, go for it. Don't be held back, you know, make it authentic, make it real. And, um, I thought based on what people were telling me, I try to believe in people. Hopefully that doesn't change, but I think it will after this. Um, and yeah, I was really excited to come back. So I was logging on at two or three o'clock in the morning for these meetings for Austin FC, um, with, uh, supporter leadership and with the club and with the team. And like, you know, um, that was really special. And I knew what I want to do as soon as I got back. Um, I thought I was, I was living the dream. I thought I was living the dream. I, I'd come back and, from the very beginning, what I've always wanted is kind of like what Anfield has, where you're in the middle of a residential neighborhood and there's people's houses. And all of a sudden you're walking down the street and the Anfield just cascades over, over overhead. And all of a sudden, like you can see the stadium. Highbury is a bit like that as well. Like we're not Highbury, gosh, the Emirates is a bit like that as well. Um, where like you're kind of just walking in this neighborhood and they're like, poof. There it is. That's that's the Emirates around the corner, not in the ocean of parking lots. And that feeling of people living and working and playing out in the streets with that in the background and being in that neighborhood and and, and that kind of thing, you know, back in 2007 didn't really exist in the United States. Like maybe you had Portland Tinders was still in a relatively commercial area. Um, Seattle was also like a very expensive commercial area. There wasn't like a, a normal neighborhood with a team. So I kind of, that was like one of those things I really wanted. I was like, man, I'll know U.S. soccer has arrived. I'll know that we've moved the game forward in this country when you have stadiums that are in people's neighborhoods and like kids can ride their bikes there and people can walk there from their houses. And um, and that's really special. So I moved, when I moved to Austin, I knew I wanted to live by the stadium because I was like, where am I going to be? I'm going to go to work. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be probably at the stadium and doing soccer stuff. So I wanted to live in this neighborhood. It's uh, one of the last working class, middle class neighborhoods in Austin. Um, it's very black and Latino and very Asian. Um, it's actually like, I really, really love this neighborhood. It's changing rapidly, gentrification everywhere. Um, but yeah, I love living here, but I purposely live here. Like every single day on, on my way to work, I pass three sides of Austin FC Stadium and the front office every single time. So I like 
six interactions with Austin FC. Like I could see the stadium for like a mile and a half straight. Um, and that's just really special to me. That just gives me chills because it was literally like exactly what I've always hoped for. Because in order to get this kind of investment, we had to change the market. Um, that was the whole supporter movement in the beginning. We knew that if we really wanted soccer to stick around and we didn't, you know, what back in 2001, MLS almost folded, you know, so it wasn't even like we were literally fighting for the survival of the league. Can we make this cool enough for, to, for fighting for the survival of the league? And so the idea was always to create a scene, make it really cool, make it really fun. And then also like invite more people in. And then eventually that changes the market and then we get investment. And then if we get investment, you get a, a level of permanence that you're yeah. not going to have without uh like no one's I've done a lot of stuff with lower league soccer too. NPSL, of course, USL, USL two. Um, I've, I've seen like a Elm city express RIP. We literally won the league. We won the NPSL beat out 95 teams in our first ever year. And then the team didn't have a place to play the next year. And it was gone the third year. Um, and that's what happens with a lot of these teams. So like, this idea of um, making sure there is some kind of permanence in the game by getting it investment and attracting investors. Uh, we changed the market from soccer being marketed to families and moms and kids to soccer being marketed to young adults with disposable income. And like married was, I forget the acronym in e economics, but it's like a couple married, no kids. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> Like people who want to drink beer and swear you used to not be able to drink beer and stand up and swear games and, and stuff. And so we changed all that to make it more like soccer is around the world and just a little bit more welcoming and, and safer for everyone. Okay. Well, I mean, sounds like you guys did a dope job. I've seen the atmosphere for, for games, like watching it on TV. Like it looks like a very lively atmosphere. Um, but we know with that, some people will get in positions and they get drunk with power. Um, and they kind of change, and the person who they are outside of soccer isn't who they technically are. Um, but they're leaving other group of people. Um, so I, I want to give you the space to tell your story. Um, can you lay out for us uh, what happened between you and the supporters groups uh, there in Austin? Yeah. So, I mean, Los Verdes ATX and La Merga de Austin. Um, a very small but influential amount of people worked really hard over months to essentially like ruin my life. Um, they were campaigning for people to file complaints about me. They were spreading rumors. Um, they were con continually attacking my character. They claimed that I like grabbed and hit them. You know, every black trope that you can think of, every black trope, literally almost every single major black trope that we have to deal with, um, especially in professional environments, but also just in general, um, I had to deal with with these people. Like, you know, they were telling me like, I don't know what racism is, I'm bringing things up. It was really terrible. But like, um, since I was one of the people that literally helped get those barriers going and was there from the very beginning, um, it was really hurtful. I think the red flags really should have gone off for me when the first ever Austin FC game happened and we, we were playing away to LA and it was still the COVID period. So like they weren't even sure they were going to let away fans in the stadium. So not a lot of people traveled. Um, not a lot of people had the money to travel either. Um, Cause it was even more expensive to be in LA at that point. And 
the Murga, the band, I was in the band. I've always been a capo, you know, on the stands and, and starting all the chants and getting the crowd going. We went to go play downtown an event. We had a party bus and we had a lot of fun on this party bus. We ended up coming back to our bar, our local brewery, our bar. And I was very drunk. <laughs> but, you know, part of being experienced with soccer is like knowing when you're drunk and knowing when you need to slow down. I think that's like part of like what I've learned as a hardcore supporter because I've gone all over the world. I've solo traveled and you've got to look after yourself. You can be drunk, but you've got to sober up enough to get home and be safe. You can't be out there like getting in trouble and being wild and irresponsible. Like you could like there's a moment where you're like, okay, I'm drunk now. I'm just gonna drink water or I'm just gonna hold on to this beer, same beer for two hours, which is I've gotten really good at because uh I told you growing up in Irish culture, if your beer is empty, someone would, someone would fill it up. So you had to get really good at drinking your beer very slowly. And yeah, when I was a kid and I'd watch eight hours of soccer on a Sunday or a Saturday, um, like I got really good at like, you know, having to pace myself, pace myself. But yeah, I was, I was pretty drunk when we got back to the, the bar in the beginning. And I was like, okay, I'm not drinking, going to get food. I'm just going to hang out. And so for three hours, I didn't drink and I felt pretty good. I was like, yeah, I'm happy. We're, you know, first game, everyone's singing and, and, and dancing. And the, the smokes are going and everyone's having like a really good time. The staff at the brewery was drinking, um, which is probably really where the, that's where the problem really started. Uh, so, I mean, gosh, this, this story still, it hurts my soul. Um, it hurts my soul, but it's the beginning of everything. Um, so I'm in the bathroom and one of the managers comes out of the other stall washing my hands. She is drunk. She is slurring her words and swaying, right? And I say to her, I was like, hey, are you guys going to stick around after you guys close for like another hour? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I kind of just wanted to have like one more beer. And, you know, at this point, I'm one of the capos. And we've been heavily promoting this place. Like we packed this place. And I was like, hey can I just hang out with you for another hour and just have another beer? Like it's our first ever game, exciting times. And she was like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. This is a white woman or a white Latino woman. And she walks out of the bathroom. We walk out together and I go to stand in line for beer. Again, I have not had beer for three hours. The last drink I had, it was, it was daylight. And then this is like nine o'clock at night. Like this is this is like I'm I'm back. For a moment there, I was just hanging out listening to the music, but I'm back now. You know what I mean? And I was like, man, I just want one more beer, one last little nightcap. And then like, um, so I go in online and I see the drunk manager stumble over to the bartender and say something. Like, and I'm like, what what's she was looking at me. The bartender looks at me and I'm like, this is very confusing. So I get to the bar and she's like, well, you're cut off. And I was like, well, why am I cut off? For me, I always ask why. I think it's, I think it's another thing about Irish culture is like, uh, if you're at a place that's like your local and your establishment and you go there a lot, you, you form relationships. But I think um, what I grew up on was those relationships. You want to protect people and be there for people. Um, drunk people usually don't know they're drunk. Um, they, they, that's part of it. So like, uh, for, yeah, for them, it's like, 
if they're like, oh, we think you've had enough, they literally put a water in front of you. And, and if you ask like, hey, what, what's going on? They'll be like, well, you're slurring your words and you're stumbling or you've like broke a glass or something. They'll, they'll tell you why you're being cut off because it's important that you know, because just because you cut someone off doesn't mean they're automatically safe, right? Especially if they don't know their level of intoxication. So like I grew up in a culture where people would just tell you, hey, your eyes are like super red. You can barely look at me right now. Your eyes are moving in two different directions or like, hey, like, <laughs> you were nodding off a second ago or like just something like, like something, anything. And, and I watched it happen. And again, it wasn't like, do you want water? It's like, no, I'm just going to put a water in front of you because you need water. <laughs> because a lot of times drunk people aren't rare enough to be like, oh, okay. But at this point, I'm not that drunk anymore. I'm like, I'm like pretty good. I've, like I said, it's been hours since I have drank anything I've eaten. Like uh, I'm not anywhere near like, out of control or like even like that tipsy anymore. I'm like practically sober at this point. Again, it's just been a few hours since I had anything to drink. Um, so I just asked, I was like, ask the bartender why am I cut off? And she's like, she didn't have a reason. She probably didn't get a reason from the drunk manager who whispered in her ear and said, cut this person off. So then they call over the other manager and the other manager was playing with his band last night and he was drinking IPAs. So he was also drunk. And I was just like, so why am I being cut off? And he was like, we don't have to have a reason. And I was like, well, I think it's, I think it's appropriate to have a reason, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm kind of sussing this out too, just for safety reasons. Like I'm like, yo, I'm black. And if I'm going to be telling other black people to come here, I need to make sure they are safe. I need to make sure that they are safe in this brewery, that if they decide to get drunk or have a good time, that no one's going to mess with them. Uh, because, you know, some people are like, yo, never get drunk around white people, like because uh, people lose their inhibitions. And I've been in situations where people have tried to endanger me in my life uh, because their inhibitions go away. And all of a sudden that dark side of them shows itself that they spend a lot of time hiding in the rest of their lives. Um, and so like, yeah, like, um, I basically was like, you know, I was like, could you tell me why? I was like, am I slowing my words? Am I stumbling? Are my eyes red? What is the reason that I'm being cut off? Like, and he was like, well, we're just going to call the cops. Went right to the cops. It, like, and I was like, well, why are you calling the police? Like, what did I do to warrant? I was like, I'm going to leave. Like, he's like, well, you can't leave. And I, and I rode my bike bicycle that day. And I live with him walking distance of the brewery and um, the stadium, right? I was like, I'm, well, I'm just going to walk my bike home, right? And he's like, well, if you try to walk your bike home, we'll call the police. And I was like, well, you're threatening with the police if I stay. You're threatening with the police if I go. Like, you're trying to say that you're trying to look out for me, but you didn't get me water. You didn't sit me down. You didn't offer an Uber. You didn't tell me to um, leave my bike there overnight right? It was only after you threatened me and I didn't immediately shut up because a lot of people, a lot of white people will threaten black people with the police as a way to shut us up. Um, and I didn't immediately back down. And, uh, he was like, you know, I was like, yeah, like you're back, you're backing it up now. Now you're offering me an Uber. Now you're offering me this. And I was like, no, I don't feel safe anymore. And, you know, I get upset because this is 2021. 
you're threatening a black person with police. You're saying that if I walk my bicycle home, you're going to call the cops and what, say I'm drunk on the streets? Mm-hmm. How is that going to end well for me? That puts me in danger. That puts me in danger. Real, like mm-hmm. real danger. I don't know how those police are going to react. The call you get as a police officer of like, oh, just somebody's walking in the street versus someone's drunk walking in the street. Their reactions are going to be very, very, very different. And I was frustrated because at no point, like nowhere in the world are you going to go where they're going to tell you it's illegal to walk your bike home drunk. That's like saying you can't walk home. Like, and I wasn't stumbling. I wasn't like at the level of public intoxication because I was not at that level of like being publicly intoxicated. That was not what was happening. I sobered up like almost completely. I literally asked to stay another hour just because I was enjoying the atmosphere, enjoying the moment. Um, and if they didn't want me to stay, they could have just said no. It, it was so shady. I literally watched this drunk manager stumble out of the bar, slur over to the other bartender, and then suddenly I'm in trouble. And she just walked off in the back. <sighs> I, I want to I wanna pivot real quick, but I want to just say, like, that's a lot to deal with. Because as African-Americans, like, we've been put in those situations so many times where we always been told, oh, you got to have grace or you got to show grace or you can't be the aggressor and things like that. And, um, you know, that, that situation could have played out totally differently, you know, versus if, that, if that's a black man or if that, you know, it, it could have played out totally differently. The other incident that happened with Austin SC supporter group, can you dive into that situation What happened there? I mean, like I said, there's been like dozens of incidents. Some were really yeah. bad. Like, I mean, like I said, we we almost this could have been a two or three part series about like the, <laughs> the level, the no, seriously, the level of racism I face and the gaslighting. And at this point, I was the only like one of two active black members of this entire organization. And like the other black person was like, Yeah, I didn't grow up in black culture. I don't, I don't really care. You know what I mean? And it was kind of like it was really rough. That was really hard um, to deal with because they were kind of trying to prop this person up and like use us against each other. Like the the other black girl, that show that came out uh, this past year um, where there's two black people in an organization and like some, some, sometimes not all skin folk are kin folk and some people are about the culture. Some people aren't. And she's like, I didn't grow up in the culture. Yep. She's like, I didn't grow up in the culture, but then also like she wasn't standing up for me as, as, as another black person. Um, and you know, that was really hard too, but, uh, there's, there's two more major incidents I'm going to talk about. Maybe it's so hard. I'm trying to like, the stories I have are so disturbing that whenever I tell them people can't believe this occurred, like they can't believe the level of BS. So this is the other story. Well, I, you know, I can believe you because I'd have been <laughs> some of my own horror stories. I definitely can believe you. you believe me. Yeah, yeah. People like um the the result, the ending result, like oh, again, this this could this could be its own odyssey. This is an entire part of like my memoir. This is gonna be like this is like one of those defining moments of of your life, um, periods of your life, um, where these people literally try to break me down and crush me. Um, all while saying they weren't racist and raising Black Lives Matter flags. Um, it was really, really, really difficult. Austin FC's first ever game, they didn't have an Austin FC banner. They didn't have a Somos Verdes banner. They didn't have a This Is Austin banner. The banner for the march on the opening game was Black Lives Matter. 
And if you look at the pictures, there is not a single black person in any of the pictures of the march, right? And they wanted me to lead the march, which I didn't feel comfortable with because it wasn't my decision to go with the Black Lives Matter banner. I didn't think it was applicable uh, to the situation. And I didn't want to be like a token, right? I was like, uh, you know, they, they didn't like that I didn't want to be tokenized. They didn't like that. I was like, no, I'm not here to be tokenized. I've done, I shouldn't even be considered a token, right? Like I've done enough. I have legitimate credentials here. Um, but they handed me a, a two pole, a two pole banner. And it was another Black Lives Matter banner. And I just remember it was like five minutes before the march was supposed to start. And I just remember like, frantically running around trying to find another black person to give this two pole to. And I ran around for like five or 10 minutes, frantically trying to find another black person to give this two pole to, because I had capital responsibilities. I had to help lead the March. I had to keep people on the side or keep people safe, make sure, um, you know, they were like not going over the railroad tracks and, and like they're they're marching the correct way because it was our first march ever. Um, so just like with American Outlaws, when you lead the march, you have certain responsibilities in terms of like you know I've I've led marches with literally twenty thousand people before. Um, you just you have to make sure everyone's safe. And because you're part of the organization, like if they're not safe, it's coming back on you. So got to be extra diligent. Um, but yeah, that that'll always stick with me. Is yeah the running around desperately trying to find someone to hand the Black Lives Matter to pull to. I finally found a couple. They're the only black couple. Finally found them. <laughs> I hand them to pull. <laughs> I, I want to ask you, like, you, you made a, you made a, point, a pointed, important part about saying tokenized. There's so many, I feel like a lot of the prominent black voices in soccer media or in soccer culture here in America, that always seems to be like a, a key point for us. Like we don't want to be tokenized, right? Like we were having a conversation at our WhatsApp group um, and the point came up about why are companies, why are soccer teams only hit me up to work in the month of February, right? There, there's 11 other months of the year. I do work in those 11 other months. Why is it only February? And we get so, definitely, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I worry a lot of the times that the work that I'm doing in and out of the soccer space is going to be viewed as tokenism to others that are not in the soccer space. You get what I'm saying? Like, but I know in my heart, I'm doing it for good reasons, right? And also in that same aspect, I'm pretty sure you've dealt with the same feelings of like if I don't do it, I know it's gonna get done half done. Or I know yeah. it's not gonna have that level of care to it. Oh yeah. So I, like if I, I wanna ask you this, like how did you maneuver and navigate those those feelings of you had. It was really hard because like in this situation, I knew I wasn't a token and I didn't want to be a token. And they were mad when I told them I wasn't their token. I actually, I just, just said it. I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm not your token here. Like, and you guys, again, you're marching with this black lives matter banner and you're, and you've got the black lives matter banner in the stadium, every game in the supporter section, every game and all this anti-racism banners and stuff you shouldn't be offended if you're going to put yourselves in that pedestal that I'm being honest and saying like, I don't want to be a token. That's like part of it. That's literally just part of accepting that black lives matter. That's like part of the statement is saying like, I don't have to be your token. Like, especially like, this is not like what we do for work. 
this is supposed to be fun. This is supposed to be what I do on my day off. Like, I don't want to feel like I'm always like just uh, on, you know, you want to be able to <laughs> relax too. I, I, Soccer is crazy. Austin MC crowds, you look at people, they're going absolutely crazy. So like, again, if, if, if white people, Latino people, Asian people are allowed to, to have that much fun, then black people should be. This is another reason I got into soccer. This is huge. This is another reason I got into soccer was because I saw a lot of people in Europe, especially black people, black people all over the world, screaming and shouting and jumping up and down. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of things in American culture that make people want to scream, shout and jump up and down. And we are not allowed to as black people enough in our culture. So I thought to myself, gosh, I would really love to be part of something that's cathartic that like gets people up and out of their seats and I can jump up and down and, and sing and, and chant and have a good time. I really want to get involved in that involved and other black people to get, be invited involved. And for me, like, I feel like I'm like the ultimate litmus test of if someone is really like a, an ally, if someone really believes or wants to learn about the principles of just being a, a big black lesbian um, with a big mouth who, who um, is, has a presence about her. Um, and I feel like people who are insecure, especially men who are insecure or women who've only valued themselves based on what other men think of them. Um, I, they, they, they lose their minds when it comes to, when it comes to me, like, um, some people like, again, are super cool, but like, it seems like the same type of characters every time have an issue with me. And I wish it wasn't like that, but it was literally like the same thing happening. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Cause you, you know, you are representing your race and culture, which is a lot of pressure for black people. And when people talk about that, the pressure of, of, re- of people constantly basically putting you in situations where you have to represent your race as a whole, white people never deal with that. Like nobody sees a white man and goes, he's going to shoot up a school. <laughs> sees a Lizzie's white man and goes, <laughs> yeah, nobody ever sees a white man and goes, that guy's probably a serial killer. Let me cross the street. You know, like <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. But when you're black, people like if you do something wrong, people are like, oh, it's black, the blacks, the blacks are this, the blacks are that. And so it is a lot of pressure. Um, but it's just like it's frustrating because you have people propagating things like Black Lives Matter. And they and, they, and basically for me, it's like if you are waving these banners, if you're making them, if you're projecting this image, you at least have to do the basics. And the basics are accepting when black people don't want to be tokens, accepting black people in leadership, um, accepting black people for their expertise, listening to them, even if you don't want to really don't want to hear it, at least listening to them, respecting them. It's like, you don't have to like me. You don't have to be my friend, but you can respect me, right? You can respect me. And they couldn't respect me as a person. Um, And like, again, like we only talked about like what, like one incident really, um, yeah. Yeah. One incident. And like, I've got so many more. I mean, like here, here's another one. This is, this is like, I'm doing this chronologically right now. We had the first ever game incident where, you know, the bar tries to have me like arrested and they ended up like dragging me out of there. And like, you know, it was, it was crazy. And it's so funny. Cause I ended up riding my bike home anyway. Cause I was like, they're like, are you good? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. 
And they were like, yeah, you are fine. And I was like, yeah, I am fine. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. And, I, and again, like, again, why am I being singled out? Of course. Like, uh, but, you know, again, the, the first ever home game where Black Lives Matter, and I'm trying to run around to find another Black person. They're asking me to lead the march, but also, like, take care of all, like, the kind of, like, asked me to do a lot. Um, and that, you know, that was a little bit frustrating. That was, should have been another red flag for me about what this was really about. Um, then the third thing is when we, first of all, getting this, the, the first thing resolved was a nightmare. People were like, Oh, are you sure this happened? Are you sure it was racist? Are you sure, you know, are you sure it's racism? Are you sure? Are you positive? Like what, what do you want to happen? Or they were like all freaking out and scared. I was like, just have a conversation with the freaking manager guys. Like you, like racism is, is like not a deal breaker for anybody white. I mean, you could still be a billionaire CEO. You can be president and be racist. Like it's the, really? no matter what. Yeah. If you're racist, guess what? The racism still isn't happening to you. Right? Um, there, there was, there was a famous quote. I can said it. it was like a basketball player. And he said that there's only deal breakers for black people when it comes to us wearing jewelry and stuff. When it comes to white players and racism, they can be racist, but as long as they produce on the field, they can look bypassing. And I mean, that's, that's certainly true. And unfortunately sad as well and whatnot. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. I, I know we, we can tell, honestly, we can talk days on end about all the stuff that happened. You know, I feel like this should be seems... part one. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even uh, get into I didn't get into the good stuff yet. I, that was just the like the beginning. I didn't well, get into. Can, I want you to save that for the memoir. You got to save that stuff for the book. You got to save know. that for the, the book. The physical violence. This is. I have to tell this last story because this is. Yeah. The most defining moments, and also one of the most sad moments. Um, mm -hmm. first ever Houston away trip, Austin FC at Houston. There is a massive brawl between Austin fans and Houston fans. Houston fans charge the Austin fans in the away section. They're fighting in the concourse. They're fighting up the stairs. They're fighting in the stands. Children are screaming. People don't know what's happening. 80, 80 people are like brawling. It's really dangerous. And I'm like, oh shit. And because I've done crowd control enough, I literally see who's instigating. A lot of people who are instigating this are in leadership. They're in elected positions. They're in leadership. They're the ones in meetings with the club, et cetera, et cetera. They're the ones who got to be responsible, right? And they're over there fighting and throwing punches, right? So I'm like, oh, shit. So I end up, you know, basically doing more crowd control. I've done I've done plenty of that and, and trying, to, trying to break people up and trying to, like, keep more people from coming in and, like, like make sure people aren't – in a place where they don't have to be um, even just maneuvering in that situation is really, really hard. I could literally, you know, I could talk all day about a lot of things, including crowd control and, and keeping football supporters safe. Um, but yeah, after this map, what, what had happened, which we didn't find out later is that like four Austin fans, the Houston away or Houston home section and threw a green smoke bomb in their home section. Which oh yeah that that that, that definitely started fighting yeah that, that yeah. started fighting anywhere on the planet anywhere on the planet like you like that's and what's crazy is is that's a perma ban that's literally anywhere else in the world that is a permanent ban from the league forget Houston Stadium the league.
because That's... like people get stabbed, people get hurt when things like that happen. Like Atlas what? versus Kevataro, like th- like there's there's things that happen because of things like that. So after the game, I'm I've been hit by grown men in this game. I've been shoved and pushed around by people wearing the same colors as I am. It was traumatic, you know. At, at midnight, it would be my birthday, so it was like this was supposed to be my birthday weekend, and I'm dudes fighting and and you know and trying to make sure people are safe. And at that point, um, we were trying to hold people back because a lot of people like didn't understand soccer culture where the the away fans stay back and stay behind um, while the home fans leave. And especially because we had such a big fight, it was really hard for people to like stop and listen to us. Because American sports, everyone just leaves, right? But like we're like, no, for your you need to stay back. And people didn't want to do it. And I was getting shoved out of the way. And yeah, people on the way back who left, they got robbed. They they got their stuff stolen. People in the band got things stolen because they didn't listen. Um, and it and it sucks, but you know, you like we we're trying to keep you safe, and you you yeah. shove people out of the way, and then you get beaten up and robbed because you didn't listen to your fellow supporter who's trying to keep you safe. That's a shame. But um, like the next day, I get a call, and I'm sorry, I get a very lengthy text message from from mm-hmm. a new capo, a person who is quoted in on MLSsoccer.com of saying, "Before April 2001, I didn't care about soccer." Right. This person's literally quoted in the same article as I am on MLSsoccer.com being like, I didn't care about soccer until our Denver away game, like uh, first season. Um, didn't care, not in the consciousness at all. I get a long, lengthy message from them. This person wasn't even there, by the way. She wasn't there. Her husband wasn't there. Uh, I get a long, lengthy and my character and what I did wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I'm like, wait a minute. So out of 400 people, I'm the only black person. You weren't there, right? And I, I'm not an elected leadership at this point. I'm not an elected leader, right? You weren't there. But you're going to insinuate that I contributed to the violence and I contributed to the negative part of the situation. Um, this is just like a racist trope. This is like, you know, black... Yeah, black people getting blamed for violence <laughs> just because we exist and we're there. Uh, what made it even more messed up was the person, one of the people who actually did throw the smoke bomb was on the board and was another capo in leadership. And they protected him and they didn't tell anybody what he did. So I'm taking the heat in the group chat and people are talking about me, but this other, like, you know, white Latino guy. Like, is <laughs> he's being protected and no one knows what he did. He got banned from Austin FC for six months. He got banned from Houston Stadium, but he was allowed to serve that six months in the offseason. No one ever found out what he did until, like, his, his ban was almost over. He got elected back into leadership because nobody knew he was responsible for people getting beaten up and their kids being, like, traumatized and all this kind of stuff because they protected him. Meaning, meanwhile, I was shoved out in the forefront. So I'm frustrated. I go to one of the other uh, board members and I'm like, listen, like this, this, this girl, you know, it's getting kind of racist at this point. She's like, they were mad at me because I, I posted in the group chat. I got in trouble because I called her husband a dick and an asshole. Mm. But 
they were like, we're giving you a, a warning. And if you get another warning, you're going to be kicked out of the organization. Meanwhile, this girl can send me this lengthy message, like right after this traumatic incident. And like, it's fine. But like, she doesn't get in trouble or talk to you, but I do. And then they were mad that I brought that up again. This is the, the people who are posting Black Lives Matter and all this kind of stuff, you know? And like, yeah, I made up, I, I went to a board member and I said, this is what happened. It's really bothering me. Like we need to have a talk about this because it's kind of racist. It's not okay for me to be blamed for this violent incident and scapegoated for this violent incident when it had like, it had nothing to do with me. And this person wasn't even there. Right. And when I reported it to this board member, he was literally just like ripping a vape pen, just ripping it, ripping it, ripping it, ripping it. And it was not nicotine. And uh, he was like, well, well, do you, I'm crying. I'm in tears. I'm at the TIFO warehouse at this point. I'm in tears. I'm at the TIFO warehouse. Um, and like, you know, he was, you know, this is still painful for me. Um, he's like, oh, do you want to hit? It might make you feel better. And I was like, no. Oh, weed is not going to make me feel better about racism happening to me, man. It's not going to make me feel better about this. This is not it. But I said, I said, it's like, he read, he reads the chat and literally laughs at me. And he says, you said she was kind of racist. You said she was racist. I said, I said, she was kind of racist. I literally said that in the chat, but uh, just with her hoping that she would back off because it was kind of racist. Like you're blaming me for something violent that happened. And you're, and you're trying to tell me that you're being my friend, but it's my birthday. And you've never texted me before. Like, it's just not true. Like, this is, this is, this is just nastiness, nastiness. Yeah. And I think anybody black would recognize that kind of nastiness. And again, this organization's claiming black lives matter, but like, you know, allowing for black people to be scapegoated and harassed. Um, and yeah, so he laughs in my face. I'm frustrated. They, then what happens is they kicked me off the capo stand and they said in the, in the message I was sent, I, by the same dude who, who was part of that group that flew that smoke bomb. Cause again, mm -hmm. nobody knew what he did. Right. So he was the one who sent me the message of being like, we're kicking you off the capo stand. Accusations of racism are really hurtful. And the only thing that they specified in the message that I did was accusations of racism. And they removed me from the capo stand. So then I had to file a formal complaint with Austin FC and I'm at a crossroads with myself of like, these people are supposed to be my friends. I'm gonna be stuck with them, like because this club's not going away, right? Uh, they're all thinking in terms, and I'm thinking of like, this is gonna affect the next five years. So I was like, how how seriously do I want to take this? Like, how seriously do I want to take my complaint? And my complaint was very general, because I didn't want, I didn't want to become the boogeyman. I didn't want that retaliation of she complained to the club about racism and I didn't want to deal with, uh, you know, the scapegoating happening, which I've felt before. And in a sense where of like, I almost had to, I almost complained to Liverpool as official supporters club about the way I was being treated in New Haven. It, it got so bad. I was being berated in the bar. It was, it was horrible. Um, and, and they, um, and so like, yeah, I had to, I filed this formal complaint because I needed them to know like, this is, this is serious and important. Like you, you know, you're, I'm one of your only black members. You're having all this projected images of being welcoming to black people and soccer community. 
at this point um on the Anfield rap which is the biggest Liverpool podcast in the world you know the, like I've, I've been to World Cups I've capoed hundreds a hundred games or so you know f- across all competitions all professional competitions and like this person who just walked up to Austin FC after it already got going, you're going to choose them over me. Like even just this one time is pretty insane. And so, uh, yeah, they kicked me off the capo stand. I had to file a formal complaint with the club. The club, of course, said they couldn't really do anything. Um, and nobody. Um, until like six months later. Meanwhile, I'm getting scapegoated and people are saying, well, you just called her racist and that's terrible. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what she did to me was pretty terrible. And um, it was just, it all snowballed from there. It all just got really nasty from there. I had to fight with them to get back on the capital stands. Mm-hmm. And they almost removed me a second time. And the third time they finally just kicked me out of Murga, um, citing an incident that happened a month before, which is even more racist. Uh, somehow... Somehow in over like 20, 25 games I capoed, I was never allowed to capo the center of capo stand. Not even for 10 minutes. We have a we have three capo stands, one on the left, one on the right, one in the center. And I was the only capo that was never allowed the center of capo stand. Like not once in 20 plus games and multiple seasons. Um, we got uh, sideline access as supporters for flags and stuff. Austin FC was very lenient, and I think too lenient um, to like one random person, like who was in the group, one of the leaders, to hand out to other people. So they were giving this person like additional power that they kind of didn't deserve. It was like at their discretion of like who they wanted to hand it out to, and we were supposed to rotate, and they never did. So somehow I never got a wristband to be have sideline access ever. The only person who ever gave me a wristband was a couple times guide the club directly. And they would trade wristbands, take their wristband off and give it to another person. And somehow no one ever traded wristbands with me. Um, and there's, I was stopped, I was prevented from joining committees. Um, I was accused of like grabbing people or hurting them when it never happened. Um, there's a lot of things that occurred that, were really traumatic and you know like this can be part one because like we haven't even talked about you know me being clinically diagnosed with ptsd so bad that i couldn't walk in the stadium um i would just have panic attacks i was having really bad suicidal ideation nightmares all the worst side effects of ptsd um in terms of like your executive function becoming limited you know eventually i i um i missed seven months of work in a 12-month period Mm-hmm. Um, and um like yeah even the way board um was really shady there was no input from membership at all it was just other board members no input from membership at all and um when i was trying to organize a restorative circle about racism there's a bunch more incidents in between but i was trying to like have the club help us reconcile this by hosting a restorative circle um, about racism to talk about racism, talk about bias and basically do DEI training. Right. And the club was pressuring me there, the charitable organization, the four ATX foundation, they were like, do you really want to do this as a big group or do you want to like name names? And I was like, I don't want to name names because they're going to retaliate against me. I don't want to do it. 
And then for months and months, like we got the funding, we got like $10,000 of funding approved, right? They got the funding, blah, blah, blah. We're going to do this. And, but they were really pressuring me. They were like, do you really want to do a speak? And I was like, no, if I, if I name names, it's me. And I'm worried about my safety and my ability to kind of function in this community. But eventually I broke down and I was like, fine, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I mentioned the names of people in leadership that I thought could benefit the most. They're like, who do you think could benefit the most from learning about DEI issues? So the week they started calling people to participate is also the week that a special meeting was called and I was thrown off the board. And yeah, they all knew that I was trying to get with the club to kind of plan something about racism and things like that. Off that same week, um, they did it. So it corresponded, like I was going to the Champions League final um, in 2022, and they like did it the day before I left. Um, the day I got kicked off the board was also the Uvalde shooting, and I was the first one to start coordinating our response within our group of that uh, because I'm from Connecticut, and I went through Sandy Hook like literally 10 years before soccer bar when we were like reacting to that happening and I know how hurtful and painful it could be and I was actually confused about why no one was um interacting with me about you know planning something for you all day what are we going to do and and they were and then somebody else had created a different thread and people were responding and talking and coordinating on that and I was like that's interesting um but like you've all day like I said, like, hey, can we delay our special meeting today because of, like, this tragedy that happens? I think it's appropriate. And they're like, no, we're having a meeting. And I was like, okay, fine. So, yeah, we have the meeting. It was the first time we've ever met about my conduct. Um, they never they never had any input from other supporters. I got over 600 votes from my board position. And they just, yeah, they threw me off. And then the Murga found a reason to throw me off. Um, it was just, again, like lots and lots of old school white collar racism. Yeah. Um, man, those, those stories, they, they cut deep. Definitely do. And I can hear, <laughs> I can hear that your voice, like it's cracking, telling us again. And trust me, like I, I want you to know, um, you are very brave for not only going through these experiences, but coming out on the other side of it and being able to tell these stories, right? Um, because these are stories and whatnot that future generations are going to encounter and need to know how to navigate and know that, like, hey, you're not the first one to go through it. Um, so I, I want to ask you this question. Yeah. Now that you've been through all this and everything like that, how how was it coming out on the other side of it? How was it? Yeah, how was it coming out on the other side of everything that happened with the Austin FC? Well, it was. It's been hard. It's been really hard because the club has mm -hmm. been a bit duplicitous. I told them I was like, I just want to capo again. It would really help my PTSD. My therapist i got two black therapists now it's awesome <laughs> get a black <laughs> therapist y'all you don't have a black therapist get one it makes a huge difference it, it, i didn't like it makes a huge difference get a black therapist um you know places like better help if there's no black therapist around you you can use better help or something like that they take insurance like get a black therapist 
Um, and the club was really placating me. I was just, I need to, I was like, I just need to capo again. Even if it's just once or twice there, no one's going to like it. You don't like be racist and like drive someone out of an organization and then be happy if they end up on the capo stand again. Like people aren't going to like it, but like, you've got to let me do it. And I said, here's the thing. I was like, listen, I really want to just go up there and say, fuck it and go up there, but I'm not going to do it because we're in Texas. And if you're going to have security come up there, have me arrested by the police and throw me out of the stadium, then I can't do that. And Austin FC is trying to tell me, well, the fans control the capo stand. And I'm like, okay, but if you're telling me that if I get up there, you're going to have me arrested. So which one is it? And there was no, you know, Austin FC doesn't have a supporters union. There was no guidelines for supporters group or anything like that. It was the Murga. It was one group, La Murga de Austin controlling the capo stands. No one else had a real say in anything else, which is also very dangerous. I know like most clubs don't do that because again, one group gets drunk on power. Usually these things happen years before um, and they yeah. fix the problem. Like, I don't know. It, you know, they just, they created a monsters among fans who just thought they could do whatever they wanted. Um, and, you know, there's people who are getting in multiple fights, violence, uh, people who are sh sharing information non-disclosure agreements. Um, there was, there was people who were, who were assaulted, um, all sorts of stuff. But if they were in leadership and they were in the kind of majority ethnic group that was Los Verdes, uh, they were like protected. You know, I, 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 an example of that was, um, we had to sign up that see the New Jersey for 2022. Uh, I was on the board at that point and, and the La Merga board, Los Verdes board and um, Austin Anthem board all met with the club um, to talk about the season. And it was crazy because they were like, well, what kind of music do you want played in the beginning? What what do you want to happen at the beginning of the match? Like, when do you want the music to announcements? Like, when do you want to do this? When do you want to do that? It was like, they were giving us a lot of control and they were giving a lot of control to people who weren't really into soccer before. He's in the group of supporters that was doing this before there was an ESPN camera in front of them. And Matthew McConaughey was right next to them or Vince Young, right? Like this, this wasn't, um, it wasn't like a lot of people became involved because they saw an opportunity for um, attention and a level of prestige that they might've not had otherwise. Um, and they, it was never about the soccer. It was about the attention, celebrities. Again, something that wasn't happening at most other clubs. At least LFC had a soccer culture. Like they had the Chivas fans. They had a soccer culture already. They were already people who were organizing and doing things. Yeah. Like Austin, where everything was just handed over and the fans just ran amok. Um, but it's just it was just too hard. There's so many things. Yeah. But we were in this boardroom and I just remember we're about to sign this fat NDA and the president of Los makes a comment that was just like, if you don't have four names, you're not Mexican enough. And everyone just laughed. And I don't remember if I laughed or if I just kind of smiled to fit in, but I was like, what the hell? We're in a boardroom in a, a semi-professional. 
just said that if you don't have four names, you're not Mexican enough. And everyone was like dying laughing. And I was like, like, what? What's going on here? Like, what's happening? And like, but I don't know, the way I was treated was both racist and xenophobic. There was a lot of Mexico fans who hated the fact that I was a USA Capo. And I never even really broached the topic a lot because I didn't want to create that kind of divisiveness in the community. Um, there's one thing that Texas did not need more of was like white people versus Mexican people or like uh, Mexican people versus black people or white Mexican pe uh, people versus each other. Like uh, Austin's very segregated. So it was like the white people had one part of town, the black people had another part of town, the Mexicans had another part of town. They didn't mix, right? Yeah. Um, so I didn't want to bring that into Austin FC culture from the beginning. So it's like, even like the, was I going to start initially? And I still kind of feel weird about it because I'm like, I want to bring people together with this game. I don't want to have separate but equal. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to bring that into it. Um, but there was a lot of like nasty xenophobic behavior. And um, I felt like I couldn't bring that up because that would, that was almost, that would almost be worse than racism. Can you imagine if I was like in, <laughs> I'm, I'm, in I'm in this supporters group called those Verdes, which is supposed to be for everything. Like y'all means all right. Y'all yeah. means all that's, that's the song. Right. And imagine if I was like, Hey, you guys are treating this me this way because I support the U S teams. I'm American. That would have been so, so divisive in like the first year. It was, it was worse for me that I went with, like I could have gone with xenophobia and had that be the primary focus. Um, Cause it was really obvious. Like I don't have a problem with Mexico fans or Me Mexican people or anything. Like I really, I've never, I've, I have an issue with Mexico's team and I have an issue with the fans in the stadium. And if they, you know, shout homophobic chants or throw full beers at our players and hit them in the head with a can, um, I have an issue with that. But I've like my social media. I've never said anything negative about a Latino person in my life. It's a huge part of my culture, being black and a Puerto Rican family from New York. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just it. They they tried to say that I was racist against Latinos, um, doing racist tropes, reverse racism tropes. So they tried to say I was racist against Latinos, and they just made things up. Um, it was it was really really tough, but I just. Every, every month, every couple of weeks, I was just reminded that they were just trying to put me down. Like the capital leadership literally was like in practice. They were, we, we had practice. We had, we had to practice. The band had practice and the capos had to be there. We had, we had capital practice and like they wanted to run it. They were like, y'all means all we're all together. Everybody's equal, but then we're going to run this like a fraternity, like a hierarchy in a fraternity where you have to do with the, the leaders. You know, you you all have to think the same as we do, or else, and that's not really part of what soccer culture means to me. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. I totally get that because you know, if everyone's thinking the same, that means you're not being progressive and thinking ideas differently. Um, Imani, as we start to kind of wrap up this, put a bow on this, right? Because, like I said, I want you to keep the good stories for the memoir because we got to make that money. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you this: What is what is next for you, and what is some advice that you have for Black supporters or Latin, Asian, LGBTQ plus supporters that might be going through some of the same 
issues or dealing with some of the same things that you unfortunately had to deal with? That's really tough. Um, I was recognized by U.S. Soccer in 2022 for both Black History Month and Women's History Month. And I was the first person to be recognized that wasn't a player or coach. Right. And I was recognized for breaking barriers in sport, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But as a kid, I used to say I never wanted to be first and black at anything because all I saw was black people who were first at something being harassed or murdered or killed. Right. I didn't want to be the first black anything because it was either. I guess it just happens to you. Like I didn't, I didn't even realize that I was probably the first black, you know, like, like there was no one else in the country, maybe even the world doing the things that I was doing at the level that I was doing them. Um, and still am in a way I try. Um, and so as much as I really want to be really positive and like have this like amazing, inspiring message and kind of be like, hell yeah. The truth is, this has torn me apart for for two years. This has absolutely grinded me down. Um, it's taken something that was my absolute passion that's gotten me through other traumatic experiences in my life, whether it's like homelessness or like the death of my father, um, just like things that were really terrible. Soccer was there for me. That community through soccer was there for me. The, the, the soccer community is the first community I ever came out to. Um, and they accepted me when I wasn't really accepted at home. So soccer went from being something that was healing and restorative to me, uh, to something that was giving me lots of trauma. And, um, people were like, don't let them take this away from you. And I was like, I didn't let them, <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't let them, but you, you, you torture someone, you gaslight them, you make um, you, you rob them of their literal joy in life that, you know, is their joy. Everyone knows, right? Like, and it affects you and it still affects me. Like I still have nightmares. The, the, the season's coming up. I'm worried and scared. The plan for this year, I cannot have a year like I had last year. Like I said, I missed seven months of work in a 12 month period. I made like $12,000 at my full-time job. I had to hustle just to like exist. Um, it really, really, really messed me up. Um, I can't even begin. Like I've sent so many sad messages to friends and disturbing messages to friends that don't know what else to do. Like when you have suicidal ideation, your brain is, is not only telling you to end your life, but showing you. So like, like my brain will just, show me stabbing myself in the throat like multiple times a day or like, um, you know, doing other terrible things to myself. Radiation can't be stopped because it's a uh, CPTSD. So it puts you back in the place where you were when all this is going on. Uh, and um, for me, it was just a very, very dark, dark place. And it's, and I, you know, I'm still, I'm still worried for myself at this point. I'm still a bit scared for myself because it's so like, I can't escape myself. Like I can't escape my own mind. You can't just like leave the room, right? Like your brain is there. And I know all the grounding techniques and all this, that, and whatever. But sometimes like if I can't sleep at night because I have this terrible suicidal ideation because I was scrolling on my phone and Austin FC has this really big photo of somebody who and even though I don't want to feel anything, I still do. 
um, it's really rough. So I'm just trying, I really like, I desperately want the club to, to keep their word and have to get back on the Kappa stand. I need it to be fair. I shouldn't have to start my own supporters group and get 50 members in order to Kappa again. Okay. I, I'm so traumatized. I can't go to the stadium. I'm about to pay for my season ticket. And like, I know I can't go to games. So like, Actually, experience is very different when you're a capo where you're, where you're gearing up for that. Your match experience is totally, totally different. Um, it's very strange for me to not be in an environment where and, and, and helping out with the atmosphere at the level that I should be, which makes the experience even more dramatic because that's all I did for U.S. soccer as well. You know, uh, luckily, Liverpool is such a big club that there is no capos, right? Everyone just kind of sings and gets in it together. And that's one of the things I love about Liverpool. Um, but yeah, like I, I'm a hot mess and I'm trying to get a new job and I'm, I love it. Um, I've reconciled a lot of me, uh, make me feel self-conscious or, or, or make me feel ashamed of myself. And I've reconciled. And this is literally like the only trauma left in my life. And unfortunately, like I think about trauma the way, you know, 14 year old boys think about sex. Um, like every five minutes, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, that's like gonna every, be the tagline of this podcast. Yeah, like, like every five minutes, and like, and not being able to to have a thought about it without feeling like horrible has been mm-hmm. really life changing. Like, I couldn't go to games. I couldn't watch games on TV. I couldn't watch. I there was a time where I couldn't watch Liverpool games. There was a time I couldn't watch U.S. games. I've missed games that I wasn't feeling well that are in my region, like in Dallas, in Houston. I had, um, I barely, it was really hard for me to capo for us games, but they always went pretty well. Um, and that's how I knew it was literally an Austin FC problem. It was like the, the green, the Verde and black is literally triggering this horrible PTSD reaction. Um, but like, I still have a hard time games like Liverpool games the only games I can watch maybe a USA game men or women maybe um but like I that's not like me you know yeah no I you know so this has been really really traumatic and help I really want to talk to people about the the health issues because um you know racism is a huge cause of stress and PTSD. As a black woman, I am in the highest risk demographic for suicide in the United States. Um, and when they talk about black women, one of the reasons is racial discrimination. Um, you know, I had to deal with tons of tropes, angry black person trope, reverse racism trope, for violence, literally Emmett trying to Emmett till me. Um, white tears trope where like white women would cry and then make up random meeting with the club president and then after the meeting and after the game I'd gone down the supporter section and like the next day I get a text by someone saying well did you did you push someone last night so and so saying you pushed them literally just got out of a meeting with the club president no one knew about it by the way just got out of a meeting with the club president no cameras and they were like you didn't do anything like you know and it's frustrating for Austin FC because they're trying to go with the 
and you got to go with equity. Like I'm traumatized. I'm the only person that's been traumatized like this by the Murga. Um, I'm somebody who doesn't deserve it. The body of work that I've done in the game and how much respect and reverence I have for the game who are involved in soccer, whether they're coaching or playing or, or creating content or just building things in a local community, local bar. Like I've been to those NPSL games. Like, you know, it's, I have such a respect and love for this game. If there's anybody who deserves an extra getting that love back for the game, it's me because it's yeah. like, you know, it's abusive. It's a, it's a now it's like, um, but Apple again for Austin FC so I can replace those really negative memories with really positive ones. And I think the club has to be responsible and just do the right thing told me, well, we're not trained for this. You know, we're in a new club. They don't have the DI training. They don't have this, that, whatever. Get the training. Like, don't don't let people get away with horrible things. You know, you, it's funny. You, you throw a smoke bomb or you're part of a group that throws that smoke bomb, and then the club knows you did it. The club bans you for six months, and they put you in the commercial for the campaign for the next Like, <laughs> I don't Yeah, no, that's crazy. It, it was a lot. <laughs> so Imani I just want to say personally I want to thank you for telling your story because I know it takes a lot of courage to tell that story after everything you've been through um, I'm personally praying for your healing um, where can people reach out to you if they are inspired by your story need someone to talk to or want to dive deeper into it with you yeah uh, they can reach out to me the best place is probably Twitter uh, I love Twitter I'm an old school Twitter like I get the best of Twitter because my timeline is always like very, very. So, so yeah, you can reach out to me to LFC. Um, supporters group. Um, this will be the fourth supporters group I've started. It's just very traumatic for me to, to mm. even engage in the supporter culture because that's literally what, what gave me this PTSD. C yeah. CPTSD from racial discrimination and racial trauma. Yeah. yeah. So if if you feel like helping me with any sort of new supporters group in Austin, reach out for me for that. You can find me at BD rallies at Liverpool matches. Uh, you find me there. You know, being rowdy, starting all the songs. You know, of course I'm starting all the of the game. I love to sing. I love to shout. So starting games there. Um, and yeah. Um, help anyone needs raising money for kids. Um, there's a little tiny club here um, that just kind of, they coach poor kids in the neighborhood. And, and right now they're, they're playing in a um, kind of like a water outlet of like where all the extra water flows in the city when it rains mm. a lot. They have like some goalposts, but they need ladders when they need, um, Balls, and they need like supplies. They need like a, a five gallon Gatorade jug. And I think the next thing I'm going to do probably this month for, for black history month. And even just in general, believe in helping people um, is maybe like make an Amazon list for them. So if anybody wants to donate to that, I'll be compiling this Amazon list and hopefully I'll have it out by the time this episode drops or the same week as the episode drops. Um, and then I will gift things they need uh to participate 
And uh, that's something that's really important to me. I literally live one street away from a U.S. Soccer Foundation pitch, a mini pitch, urban pitch. Um, the kids play there every night. They play every night until the lights turn off. This is Austin. This is in the country. It's just most people aren't supporting MLS. They're supporting like Mexico teams. They're supporting Brazilian teams. They're supporting other teams. Um, but I kind of love the energy around the stadium here. And again, being in the same neighborhood as the stadium, uh, people know me in this neighborhood. I, I bike everywhere. People, people, people bike, they say, because uh, my bike is just awesome. And um, yeah, I just love it. So any, any help I can get kind of raising money for this local team and uh, getting them kind of, the tools and supplies they need to go play. So I'm getting really tired and hungry because I haven't eaten that anything. No, I'm totally like one understand. bite of food. I'm like losing that one bite of food. But uh, if anyone wants to help me with that or doing positive things in the community or even just, yeah, help me advocate for myself or, or help me with resources to kind of talk to, to us soccer, talk to MLS and talk about me because I mean, we barely scratched the surface. I think we got things that happened. And about yeah. 5% of the thing, the way, um, and I've had to send some scary messages to people and it's because I, I have been scared for my life and, um, desperate for relief because I, I don't know if I can go through mentally what I went through last year, because here's the thing, if you want you to end your life, it takes a lot of energy just to stop that feeling and to not do what your brain's telling you. Like, you know, the way the brain tells you to eat or go to the bathroom and, and instead it's telling you to end your life, you, it incapacitates you. It incapacitates you. You can't invest in yourself. You know, I've gained 50, 60 pounds. Uh, my up like 20%, um, 20, uh, like 10 points on my, uh, what should we call it? My heart rate, my resting heart rate. Um, fit I've ever been in my life. And we all know for black people, especially for black women, that like we need to do things like take care of our health. But the effects of racism on our health and on how we're just able to live and move through the world is serious. In your 2021, um, the CDC said racism was a national health crisis for black people because it leads to so many other conditions. And um, as we try to increase awareness and try to increase participation for black people in soccer, I think that, you know, if this is happening to me, what's happening to other people out there who maybe don't have as many people who can advocate for them. Um, and I want to speak up for those people, but then also for all those helped and never have to deal with this. Hopefully, hopefully I'm, I'm the only person for a long time that's going to have to deal with this at this extent. Um, but it's, it's devastating. I, I want to be able to be like right now and I've made it and blah, blah, blah. And it, but it's not, you know, I'm, I'm struggling almost every day. I'm very scared about the season starting. Um, but I just hope Austin FC does the right thing. I have a supporters group. We have the Bible. Exists. There might be like five of us. But it exists, you know. I don't maybe haven't built a special website or whatever, but like, you know, what is a supporters group? Is it a social media site and a website? Um, guidelines. They were trying to get me to help them write the guidelines. And I was like, that's fine, but 
I still can't go to the stadium, guys. I can't go to matches. So how am I supposed to run a supporters group and recruit and do all this kind of stuff if I can't go to attacks just by walking in the stadium or I'll have suicidal ideation right after I leave for for the next two weeks. Um, So we'll see. Yeah. To God, whatever Um, God you believe in. (laughs) (laughs) No, Look, once again, I, I applaud you for being able to tell your story. But, Amani, I just want to say thank you um, for being brave enough to tell the story. Um, for listeners out there, um, once again, if you are struggling with uh, suicide, thoughts of suicide, or mental health, um, the numbers are provided at the bottom here on the screen. If you're listening via uh, the podcast, um, the number is 988 or 1-800-662-HELP. Um, so with that being said, um, Imani, thank you once again. Listeners, we will see you guys next time for our next thrilling story in the Black history and soccer culture. Um, I'll you guys later. Be easy. Be safe.